Well, welcome to another virtual event in our annual ethics lecture series. My name is Rick Kite with the D.B. Reinhardt Institute for Ethics and Leadership. And tonight we are honoring the legacy of Aldo Leopold. This is something that communities throughout Wisconsin have been doing every, every year, the first week of March since 2004. And, um, and tonight it's, uh, it's a little different because we're doing hosting a virtual event, but that also allows us to do some collaboration. And we're joined by some faculty and students from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse tonight. Our speaker tonight is J. Drew Lanham, and the topic is coloring the conservation conversation. Uh, Drew Lanham is the author of The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, that book received the Reed Award from the Southern Environmental Law Center and also the Southern Book Prize and was a finalist for the John Burroughs Medal. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the best books that I've read in many years. And uh, there's so many passages in there that uh, are, are so reminiscent of, of things that come right out of the Sand County Almanac. Uh, and so um, I really encourage you to read that book if you haven't already. Uh, Lanham is a birder, a naturalist, a hunter conservationist. He's published essays and poetry and publications like Orion, Audubon, Flycatcher, and Wilderness, um, also many anthologies. He has a new book coming out, um, and I don't remember the title of the book, but you, you can talk about that when, when, when we're getting into the lecture. Um, I know it's coming out at the end of March, and I've ordered it. I've just forgotten the title. Um, and so we thank you so much, Drew, for joining us and uh, thank all of you for watching. Drew, this is, this is so cool to have you here with us tonight. Thank you for that. Thank you for the introduction, Rick. And, and, and thank you all for being there, for being here, for us being together in, in, um, in this virtual space. It's an to have the opportunity during this, this Leopold week to, to really speak to um, a legacy that that has has carried me forward and I think a message that's carried many of us forward and that has the capacity to do so um, far into the future. So this is a discussion tonight and I, I look forward to, to having that discourse, uh, whether it be answering questions or asking them um, probably on occasion a raised eyebrow or a shrugged shoulder. Um, it's because I don't profess to know everything, um, but that leaves room for us as academics. It's called job security because that means there's more to learn. And that to me is one of the hallmarks of, of an evolving mind, which I would, I would sort of like to take a little bit of time tonight um, to, to talk about that. Um, in some ways um, as it pertains to Aldo Leopold as, as the, the father of, of modern wildlife conservation, I really think Leopold stands in the doorway of much more that unfortunately we were um, robbed of um, by, that, by that fire, by that smoke in, in 1948. And so for our thinking, it's important to not only think about the origins, but the evolution, but also understanding within the context of evolution that there is no penultimate perfect. Um, 
that we adapt, we survive, we adapt, um, we, we, we reproduce differentially and, and we move on. And here that differential reproduction is in thought in those thoughts that are able to go forward and grow um, and then be adapted for the next generation and so on and so forth. And so that's, that's the way that I've come to think about Aldo in so many ways, as, as Rick introduced me as a birder, as a hunter, as a wildlife conservationist, um, as an author, as a poet, as, as all of these things. Um, Leopold was certainly all of those and, and more and prescient, I think, in ways that, that other people of his time were not. And in that prescience, not perfection, but in prescience gives him um, some ground to stand on that, that gives a little more stability to our thoughts. So I'll share this and I will tell you that this is something that, um, that as I've thought about our talk tonight, <laughs> I, sometimes I just, I, things hit me sort of at the last moment. So um, I was sitting um, just sort of, I, I, I craft a lot on my phone. I call it two finger self-dictation, two thumb, and um, wanted to share this with you. And it's, it's, it's really at the head of another essay that I had worked on um, that, that was entitled on considering the whiteness of saving nature and a simple proposal for inclusion and diversity in practice. Um, so I wanted to share a little bit of that with you, but this I think is more appropriate. Aldo Leopold was an imperfect human being, come of age in the first half of the 20th century, a time of dire conservation circumstances, to be sure, overuse and abuse, dereliction of duty for the greater good and lack of personal discipline, willful ignorance and impugned action taking towards taking it all and leaving none for later. We know not just the names of some of the species that disappeared during this time, we know the names of individual beings, the lasts of their kinds, Martha the passenger pigeon, Lady Jane and Incas, the Carolina parakeets, Booming Ben, the heath hen. As prairie dust blew into Washington and swamps were drained to cracking mud, Leopold witnessed an arrogance that spelled disaster for what, for what had formerly been an abundance. And in that midst, there were other crises boiling, two world wars, political scandal, a depression, a racist president or two or three, and a system of injustices heaped upon black and indigenous and people of color that was unrelenting, debilitating, and often deadly at the end of ropes or policy. As Aldo watched the green fire dying in that she-wolf's eyes in a New Mexico draw, black folks were being blamed for the decline of bobwhite quail and other birds in South Carolina. Promises broken dozens of times to native peoples were being broken again for good measure. The eugenicists were perverting Darwinian theory to forward white supremacy and among them, John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, and other conservation luminaries stood firm. 
But even then, as conservation proceeded in its homogenized patriarchal way, the work done shows that as imperfect and silver spoon born as he was, Leopold's mind may have been arcing differently. Not perfectly, but differently. Aldo Leopold, born in an age of racism rising at the very, at the very apex, seemed to be a mind of evolving mind. Between his wolf killing, not thinking like a mountain days, to understanding that a howless valley perhaps meant death to the same mountain, decades passed. Between counting trees to cut for the mill and understanding that some places needed to go untouched, time passed. I wonder how Aldo Leopold would have felt about me about the societal crimes of racism, of bigotry, and all the other biases plaguing us in this current age of woe, but certainly present before. I can't know beyond his writings and quotes directly that there are two things he said that interest me, the relation of people to each other and the relation of people to land. Now, we will never know that answer from Aldo himself, but I have a living witness who after serenading me on guitar with the songs her father once sang to her and her family around the shack campfire, told me face to face upon my asking of this question, this wondering question of what Aldo would have thought told me that dad just always told us to do the right thing. I know her as someone keenly aware of human rights and social justice and the need to evolve and to do better. And so tonight I hold Estella Leopold Jr. as my light and Leopold legacy that allows me to see his evolution in the flesh. And so it is with this dynamic potential for goodness arcing towards better, not perfect, that I hope we continue this discussion tonight. And so welcome, my friends, to the Anthropocene, to the age of humanity, an epoch of epic hubris, fueled by unrivaled technological advancements outstripping our ability to monitor or to manage them. It is an age witnessing rising tides of politically initiated human bias disparate suffering and the dismantling of what we thought was an evolving democracy. It is the time come of human assisted climate change that is driving ecological unraveling and environmental contention over how to save a world that will in fact go on without us. But we cannot fathom that beyond our being. The sum total of it all comes to bear in complex ways that bring us into a period of uncertainty as to how we will coexist with one another as a species, much less along with all the other biota waiting in a warming, hyper-connected, and less wild world that seems at constant war. Now, from a conservation standpoint, there is a mantra of grief and loss surrounding the ever-accelerating extinctions habitat destruction, angst over alien exotics and non-natives, and the looming compounding catastrophe, 
catastrophe of carbon emissions clouding the planet to melt polar ice caps while flooding and drowning much of what we currently know as terrestrial. This is the new age bringing the worst of humanity's consumptive overreaching and concurrently throwing adverse and extreme meteorological cycles at what remains above the rising flood. We are in an age of extremes wrought by our own hands. We might well call this the age of human excess. Now, as an African-American ecologist trained and come of professional age on this stark ecotone between the fading Holocene and this new time, I've watched a species decline and fade to extinction, many of them, in fact. I've watched tropical forests, grasslands, coral reefs, and wetlands shrink in dimension from sprawling to postage stamp size before my very eyes. I'm a trained and concerned observer and lover of the natural world ascending into middle age as we consider according to Bill McKibben, the end of nature, or my friend John Lane, the Anthropocene blues. And we wonder how anything will remain. But then I'm watching too as hate in the form of racism, biases and other isms, some thought among the beast fading to non-existence rears its loathsome head and proves its persistence in the midst of a progressive modernity, we actually underestimated. That bias seeps into every corner of our existence, no matter our race or ethnicity, is a fact. It ultimately, though, impacts us all. But for those of us on the darker side of the color line, considering conservation and environmentalism as life's priorities, including how we view and are viewed regarding the environment around us and the care of it, it sits and hits us differently. I'm a Southern black man living and working among landscapes touted for what they are ecologically. But for me, those celebrations of saving the last great remaining occur in the dark shadows of evils exacted on ancestors who shaped the very landscapes we now extol. Now, this is not a uniquely black story. You can see genocide, the American West, nat native cultures decimated, discovery appropriated, manifest destiny to plunder. But here in my native South and in the experience and opinion that I know best, it is the data set. So in that light, Aldo wrote in this wonderful first person about his personal experiences from his early recollections as a child in Burlington, Iowa, and, and, and what house wrens may have meant to him, to firing down into those wolves on that day and watching the fierce green fire die in that she-wolf's eyes, all the way to being selfless enough to help a neighbor with a fire out of control that ultimately killed him, I want us to think about this personal data set as we have our discussion tonight. And as Aldo Leopold declared a land ethic as a dynamic sort of living document that shared among us all that this art towards better 
is going to require us to think in many ways like the mountain. So I'm looking forward to this, this discussion. I'm looking forward to the questions and I'm looking forward to learning in the exchange. So thank you for listening. Thank you. That, that's so wonderful. It's such a wonderful reflection on, on Leopold's continuing significance and putting it in perspective. Um, one of the things I, I noticed both in your talk so far tonight, but especially in your book, The Home Place, is, is the tone with which you write. Um, and that, I think, more than anything else, reminds me of Leopold in a way, and that he was he was documenting loss. He was talking about environmental destruction. He was, and of course, he talks about the passenger pigeon. Um, but and and he he had some strong words for what was taking place, like a ruthless utilitarianism and so forth. The real, but he never wrote with contempt, and he never wrote with condescension. And what he did is he, uh, you read this, and and what you do is you feel filled up with even more love for your own place. And this is what you do in the home places. You never write, um, you document tragedy and loss and even fear in places, but you're always writing with hope and encouragement and trying, I think, to deepen our love and faith. And is, I'm wondering, is that, a, is that an intentional strategy that you use in that book or is it just who you are? Well, I, you know, I thank you, Rick. That's a great, and I, I think it's, um, it's a strategy born of my being, in, in, in part. And, and the first thing that I see in nature, is, is beauty. That's the first thing that I saw that, um, that I fell in love with in my home place. And, um, you know, one of the first things that that you learn as a naturalist is not only the beauty of life, but the tragedy of death. And so um, in, in seeing that in growing up on a farm, um, you, you, you learn to appreciate these, these moments of, of living. And so finding some dead animal, for example, and having known that animal in life, but understanding that that's part of the cycle and that that animal then becomes a part of, of something else um, is, is, is a part of that, that, that seeing beauty. So I, I want to speak to beauty in part because I want us to, to have something to fight for. And part of the reason that I began to write this way was standing in front of lecture halls full of students and as we talked about issues of climate change and habitat fragmentation and extinction vortices and, um, and, and all of the things that were going wrong, I realized that day after day after day, it was like I was taking a sledgehammer into the classroom and hammering on hearts. And something changed in me, I think, the day, and it's a weary, that's, um, I mean, as, as Leopold talks about us operating in sort of this, this realm of woe, I remember the day a graduate student approached me, I was on the way to that same class, a conservation biology class, and he said, did you hear, did you hear? And this was back in the old days of Netscape, many of you haven't heard of that, 
Um, but um, old Netscape, and he said, they found one. And I said, they found one what? And he said, they found an ivory bill. And I almost fell over. I went back to my office um, and, and pulled up the article, looked at it. And, um, you know, and at the time, these were some of the first reports. And of course, you know, the controversy grew later as um, several um, sort of aberrantly plumaged um, Pileateds were found in on the White River, but no one could really disprove the sighting of that bird. And so I went into class that day and I stood in front of the students um, and, I, and I began to weep because this was good news. This was hope. It's, it's what we ultimately work for. And Emily Dickinson's hope being the thing with feathers, this was hope materialized at that point in time. So Rick, it, the, the point is to, to write with the science in the forefront, but with the personal experience sort of, um, sort of being the uh, 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 really uh, one of the multiple working hypotheses and that, that finding hope in nature is important. I mean, it sustains us. And, and part of sustenance is hope. It's, it's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. It's the food that grows from the soil that nourishes us. But hope, um, hope is this emergent property that, that we, can't, we can't grab out of thin air. We can't dip out of a stream. Um, we can't plow it up. We can't till it but we need it. We absolutely need it. And, and Leopold has always given me that. He has always given me that. And, and I go to that shack and I've been there many times and every time is like the first time. So that's, that's where it comes from. I, I feel driven to, to tell the truth. Um, sometimes that's the bitter truth, but how, can, how do we live in the bitter truth? How do we track across that? You know, it's like, I'm not an experienced snowshoer, but guess what? Hope is like snowshoes. Um, otherwise we sink and we mire. You know, down here it would be pluff mud. Well, you know, you better know how to, you better be prepared to lose your boots in the mud. Mm -hmm. uh, how to learn how to get across it. So I, I, I want to write in a way that gives people not not reason to go and pull the covers over their heads, but to rise up out of that same bed and do something in that day so that they go to bed that night feeling like they want to cover up to get warm, but shuck them off the next morning to do to do better. In the home place, you you describe that the time when you were a kid and you you find a copy of Aldo Leopold's a San County Almanac on your brother's desk. And uh, you wait for him, I think, to go back to college or to go back somewhere. And then you, then you kind of confiscate it and keep it for your own. Um, uh, would you have been a different writer and a different person if you hadn't discovered that book? I, you know, I, I think so. I'd like to think that I would have discovered it eventually. Um, you know, there were other books that, that I was reading, um, Sally Carragar and uh, Edwin Waiteel. You know, I had begun to dabble some in those books, but those are, while they're beautiful writers, um, that 
none of them captured sort of this essence of my being like Leopold did. I was reading Leopold's words and feeling like he was writing about portions of my life because I was living with my grandmother half the time and I knew what it was like um, to, to heat by, by a cord of wood. Um, that, you know, I, I wasn't, at least in my youth, wasn't making the mistake of, 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 of thinking that groceries came elsewhere than from the labor of our own hands. So that hit home to me. And I, I'll tell you, the first thing that attracted me were those, were those geese on the cover, right? Because I couldn't figure out why my brother was reading about these birds. I didn't know that he was a bird watcher. And so I picked it up and it was such a light book and it was such easy reading for me that I just, it, it felt like floating to read it. And I, I understood everything in it. So it was just sort of instantly, I just absorbed it. You, um, you have some, some of the essays in your book are so relevant to things that are going on right now, even though it was published a couple of years ago, but it was written. I'm sure you were writing on these essays for a long time before they come together in book form. Um, and so it, like in, in Birding Wild Black, you talk, you talk about what it's like to be a person of color um, who is, is just really odd. You, um, people don't expect to see you in many of the places where you are when you find yourself out in the field in the woods. Um, and you talk about how your real hope is to see more people of color doing that sort of thing. Um, uh, but then you also have, in, this, in the chapter on new religion, you say, I find myself defined these days more by what I cannot see than by what I can. And that seems a really powerful statement in this age of identity politics. And I'm wondering, like, what are the layers of meaning in that sentence? Because you put a lot of weight <laughs> on that in that chapter. And it's coming in, in, it's kind of a culmination after a series of reflections on very difficult topics. Well, again, it, it sort of goes back to, um, it goes a little bit back to hope, right? And something that I, I'm not sure other than the bird that I watch, um, sing or, or, or return from, from some long migration that, that, that I can hold on to, or some person who, who, who by caring for nature or another human being gives me that, that hope. It's, it's not anything that, that, that we can purchase and it's available to everyone um, we just we just have to be willing to sort of grab it as it as it floats by. So, but but we can't see it. You can't see it. You certainly can't see it coming. Um, and it's an ephemeral sort of thing. So, you know, it's that spring pool that nurtures the frogs' eggs, the tadpole, the froglets, and ultimately the frog. And and we have to appreciate that pool while it's there. You know, for for me, it, it's it's also um, I, I can't see, um, I can't see adaptation, I can't see evolution, but by that warbler that returns after a trans flight, 
that maybe I know I haven't marked that to know that it's the same bird, but I can't also disprove that it's the same bird. And so in my creative mind, thinking about the, the, all these, these, these millions of years of, of, of sort of trial and error resulting in, in this that I get to see and that evolution has, has done this thing and here we are, me and this bird, eye to eye, um, me, me um, weighing thousands of times more than it does, dwarfing it in size, but it doing something that I could never do. And I can't see what made that bird that bird or what made me me other than knowing the science behind it. But then the differences between us and I could never be that bird and that bird could never be me. But, but that, that wonder, I suppose is what we would call it, that wonder, that awe of, 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 of not just what that bird is, but who it is and who I am and the difference between us, um, that, that chasm of difference between feathered being and me or between another human being who's had a different experience than I have, but how we come together under this, this mantra I talk about, same air, same water, same soil, same earth, same fate. You know, we're all bound together in that, as different as we are. We're all bound together. Our existences are tied tight as a tick in, in scrubby pine to that. And if we don't recognize it, then, then we, we will fail ultimately together. And so I would, I would rather hold on, yeah, to, to that, that science, that rigorous science that we do, but the wonder, the awe is not anything that can be quantified. It's not, there, there, there's no statistical package that can be applied to what I feel when I see and hear that first prairie warbler sing up the chromatic scale in that scrubby leftover bit of forest, nobody can, no, nobody can quantify that. So that that I cannot see, that I cannot describe is an important critical thing, I think for all of us to grab onto because the moment we gain the answer to everything, I think the, the spark flows out of us. Um, you know, I've, I've told my loved ones, when I'm not learning, then my ashes should be in the wind. Um, as, as long as I still have breath and brain waves, then there's something to learn, even if it's the, if it's the last bit of light that I see. So. That's, that's the unseen that, that keeps drawing me forward. That's the, magnet, that's the magnetic field that I can't describe that draws me to know, or maybe not even to know, but to see, to experience that next thing. And so as much of a scientist as I am, and I want to know the names and I want to know the origins and I want to know what happens following this or that, I've become somewhat comfortable sometimes with sitting back and just watching. 
and just being a part of it. So that's the unknown. That's the wonder, uh, Rick, is, um, that's, that fills that chasm between bird and human being, between knowing and not knowing. And not that we don't seek to know, but then there's that next step that we don't know. And there are some things that we will never know. And I just think that's amazing. There are things I will never know what that prairie warbler is thinking as it's crossing the gulf and its wings have never stopped beating. And that bird is only mere feet, maybe sometimes inches above surf or some hungry fish that could jump up and take it out of existence. But it made it to the patch that I'm watching. And it has the wherewithal after all of that to climb to the top of that sapling and belt out that song. And, and that to me, is is worth every bit of unknowing well that's you just expressed the like the deep reverence that i i find in your writing and also in leopold's and for for two people who who both do not adhere to a, a, any kind of organized religion and you don't you but you you find all kinds of reverence in, in leopold's work but in yours also this understanding of like a, a real awe in the face of of these the beauty that we're surrounded by. So thank you for that. We're going to jump to some questions here. We've got a, a um, got a couple of questions from people in our Zoom audience, and then we'll also ask some questions from Facebook. Ryan, you had a question you wanted to ask. Go ahead and unmute. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I was curious in the years that you've been teaching, if you've seen any change in students' attitudes toward uh, ecology, climate change, uh, the sort of status quo attitude of the public toward those things. Um, are students' attitudes changing? Thanks for the question, Ryan. Yes, um, in, in, a, in a single word, yes, they are changing. I mean, there's so much information out there. I mean, now we are a little biased and, you know, and I'm seeing those majors of people who would pay attention, right? Um, and, and so, you know, the challenge is to get those students whose attitudes have, um, have changed, who've learned from the science, um, who quote unquote are the believers that then as, as scientists, we can't just sort of preach to the choir, right? That, that as they walk across campus and you know they maybe are <laughs> walking to the business school or they have friends who are in different majors, that they communicate that science and what's happening in some relevant way, that it's not necessarily all about polar bears not having places to haul out, but maybe it's about black and brown children not being able to breathe on bad air days um, that, that, that gives us this message of climate change. And so that's, that's the critical, to me, in, in the work that I do, that's the critical learning experience now because we have a cadre and cohort of students who know it's happening. You know, they have peers who, who speak eloquently to that. But how do you take that message, Ryan, beyond your major to people that I will never see, um, that they, but that they see on a daily basis? So that's what I want them to do, to understand how they move the science beyond the ivory tower out into the general public.
And Kelly, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really find important about your work is that you are still working within the tradition of nature writing, as we've been talking about with all the correspondences you have with Leopold. Um, and yet you're also able to change it. So you you take the personal and the scientific and you blend those together in ways that we're, we're familiar with in that tradition of what draws people to good nature writing. And yet you can also include epigraphs that span everything from Emily Dickinson to a Maasai proverb. And that your introduction teaches us how to view the colors of nature in a completely new way. And so this idea of how you honor the tradition of a system, right? How you think about nature writing as a genre, and then yet how you intervene in that genre and do something that moves it forward, that does something different with it. I'm wondering if that's in some ways a model to think about um, systems change too. So I've got two questions that you can answer either one. One was like how you see what we can still use about the tradition of nature writing and what in the new nature writing needs to change. And then the other question would be, is there, how do we grapple with being part of big traditions and big systems where we feel like a single voice, a single book can't make that much of a difference? And how, did, how do you motivate yourself to write within all of those traditions as a single person you know, as a, as a single boy voice, of course, now you'll have multiple books out, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you can take either one of those questions. Well, I think it, Kelly, right? Yes. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I think for, for me again, that, and, and I teach my students that you've got to know, you choose the, you work with a data set that you know best and that data set is self, right? And so, but before you begin to, to address issues of climate change or anything else, how is it affecting you? How is it impacting you? Um, what's, how, what hits you closest to your home place, wherever that might be, whether it's you know, in the middle of, of, a, of a thousand acres of wilderness or it's in um, you know, a brownstone in, in Harlem, how does what's happening on this global scale impact you? Once you can begin to dig inside and understand that and, and look in the mirror sort of on this day in this daily basis and say, okay, my story is important. You know, as an ornithologist, I tell folks, everyone has a bird story, even if it's the chicken leg you ate last night or the pigeon that pooped on your car, that's a bird story, right? And so that bird story then can be enlarged. And, and as a writer, to, to write intensely to what you know, not to overreach, right? But to write to what you know, but then once that writing happens and if you've done it to the best of your ability and, and been accurate um, with the science as a, as a creative nonfiction writer, but then evocative with those portions to hopefully move the heart and the head together, then you begin to find empathy. And once you begin to find empathy in others who can share stories, so it's amazing to me. I'll, I'll get a letter or a note from someone. From I've had a note from a an eighty-something year old white woman in the Nebraska Sandhills 
who said, I found this commonality with your book or to get uh, a, you know, a, 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 a 20 year old um, black woman who says, I found something useful that I could grab onto in the book. And, and, and she's from South Florida and to get sort of these, these catty cornered experiences that meet at what you've written, it, it tells you that, that your story not only has value, but their stories have value. And so I encourage people to tell their stories, to speak their stories. And I didn't start writing with the intent of, of having this book, really. Other people saw it, but it was cathartic in ways. It was my way, remembering the beauty of how I grew up but also understanding the struggle of my ancestors, that's cathartic to me. Um, and, and having other people understand why, not just why do I think like I do, but why do other people like me maybe think like they do? Um, that we all have these prisms, right? And that these prisms um, give us this, this refracted light that allows us to see things beautifully, you know, whatever color of the spectrum we're in, Roy G or Biv, that there's an opportunity for that light to be refracted through us. And so not the, you know, that spectrum, one doesn't stand without the other. So that's why I want people to see all these colors and I want them to, to, to see themselves somehow reflected you know, I'm, as I say, I'm proudly a black man, but there's other stuff in me. There's other stuff that's made me who I am, both bitter and sweet. And I think the more people understand the amalgam of who it is that we are, not just on, on how we are described by label and how we appear and who we claim to be, but who it is that we truly are once we dig inside and begin to unravel the tapestry, then we weave it back together in stories and we weave it back together in a way I think that makes it stronger, Kelly. I, I you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, you know, so that, that to me is sort of the critical nature of, of this, of this whole thing. It's that first person narrative. You know, I can't tell anyone's story better than my own. And that's part of, part of what happens is you begin to tell interactions with others. There's this fear that you might mistell the story. And a good editor will tell you, you know, the best you can do is tell it the best you can remember as it happened to you. And as that happens, you gain confidence. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate in that, um, you know, I've, I've had a fairly good memory over all these years. But that, that sort of, that remembering, that data set, it's important to get it down. It's important to get it down. So the data we know best is us. The data I know best is me. And that's, I, you know, almost everything that I write, there's gonna be first person pronoun in it. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's just who, it's just, just how I operate. We have a question coming in from Facebook uh, who, um, from Winston, and he wants to uh, know more, if you could elaborate a little bit on your experience of racism while doing field work 
and he wants to know whether that has changed over time. Well, I, you know, I think the first, uh, the first time I really felt it was when I was working for the State Department of Natural Resources and, um, and, and working in, in really one of the, the whitest counties in the state, um, close to where I live now. But um, when, I, when I moved up to this part of the, the state, um, there was a, a known sundown town and I'm not sure you're familiar with sundown towns, but um, I know they're, I mean, they're all over the United States, the history of them, but a town that by code or rumor um, said, niggers be out of, sun, out of town by sundown, right? Um, and, and so this one town, not far from the university, I was told, well, you know, you don't need to go there at night. And I was working for DNR <laughs> and I was doing bat, I was, I was working on a bat project. Not too many diurnal bats um, in the upstate of South Carolina. So I can remember the, the fear and, and this, this trepidation of doing the work, right? How am I gonna be a biologist? And I, didn't, I never mentioned this to my supervisor. You know, when she said, well, we're going to go to this place and do this work. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm hearing all these stories of local people that had told me, you can't go there at night. And, and my thinking is, what's going to happen to me if I go there at night? Um, so that was sort of one of the first episodes or, you know, working with the same woman uh, just an amazing scientist, Mary Strayer, Mary Strayer Bunch, who's now retired, um, but but working in in, in 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 some of the backwoods and some of the hollers, so to speak, and um, and and being followed by um, by these three white men in this in this pickup truck toward a dead end road at the end, in a dead end road, and knowing um, how they had looked at us as they passed us. And, and watching their heads turn and then seeing the brake lights on this truck and being followed. And again, not knowing whether my work to trap small mammals and to build trails and to hack peregrine falcons, whether that was gonna end up in me being dead in the bottom of some gorge. So that, that's a, that palpable feeling of fear coming up from your stomach and, and feeling tasting the bile in the back of your throat. Um, it's hard to describe what that, the emotions that course through you. Um, so, you know, that was sort of the beginning of it, but then having to abandon a dissertation project because uh, a group of white nationalists moved in close to my research plots. And they ended up being on a news special um, that talked about um, how violent they were and, um, and going to my major advisor and admitting that I was afraid to go there. So those kinds of incidents, I mean, it only takes one, right? But, but those kinds of incidents sort of put you on a different, your head on a different sort of swivel. So when you're supposed to be watching birds, 
you're you're watching and you're listening on your point count, but you're also listening for the change in the sound of the truck engine as it passes you and whether it's slowing down or whether it's turning around to come back. Um, all of those are things that you're thinking about that keep you from being fully immersed in your work. So I know that people still experience that. You know, I know that, and it's, you know, and as I talk about these things, um, sometimes I'll have, for example, you know, I talk about range changes and how that contracts your range or how physiologically it creates a different stress. We know that stress hormones in birds when predators are around or habitat conditions may not be optimal, um, that, their stre that, that, that your stress hormones, that um, those things, those fight or flight responses um, that in the short term aid in survival sort of wear down on you. So after a while, they wear on you. And it's a sort of chronically debilitating thing that you have to fight against. So it's one of the things when I write about birding while black and, and Rick, you talked about the, the sort of applicability of that to today. Um, unfortunately, we know that racism hasn't gone anywhere that perhaps it's, it's, it's sort of the scab has been pulled off of it and it's raw. And so people feel in some ways an impunity, they feel that they can go at you in this very open, direct and hateful way. Um, so you've got those direct aggressions, macroaggressions coming at you on the one hand, and you've got microaggressions coming at you from the other. So it's like an undertow wants to pull you out away from the shore and the big wave that crashes on you at the same time. So you got to be a different kind of swimmer. You've got to be a different kind of swimmer when you've got the rip current and the, the big wave coming at you at the same time. Um, and you've got to be a different kind of swimmer with your eyes on the bird that you want to identify. You got to keep all that in mind. So that's the, that's the task. So the question then becomes, well, how do you do that? Well, man, when you have the opportunity to focus in, to really focus in and watch that bird, then that one bird that you're watching becomes more important than the next bird that you can't see. And you soak up all of that prairie warbler that you can. And you absolutely soak up every bit of that song because the next bird isn't promised, right? So it's sort of, for me, um, you know, I tell people these days, I'm more bird watcher than birder. Uh, I'm more concerned with that bird that's right here, right now, than I am the next bird. That, not that I don't want to see the next bird, um, but there's a certain, I guess, difference that's evolved in me that makes me want to soak up as much as I can at that time. Because, I mean, we're in a situation these days where a virus could take us out, but I'm also a black man and maybe a policeman having a bad day could take me out. So again, you know, the virus maybe is the big wave. <laughs> the policeman is the rip current or maybe they're reversed. 
but how do we operate in between those two opposing forces, both of which aren't good for me? And uh, the beauty of a bird and telling that story and having people inspired by stories to say, well, I'm inspired to go out and to appreciate nature in this way. That's what get, keeps me going. Right. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Callum. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to go back to kind of what Ryan was asking about earlier. Um, and in your response to him, you were talking a little bit about the students who recognize kind of the issues we're facing with conservation and the environment and the students you see in the classroom who know that and then students who do not always are not always on the same wavelength. And I wanted to ask um, as a student myself, what is like, what are the routes into those conversations for those of mm -hmm. us how do we move that science forward to students who may not be on that wavelength? Thanks, Callum. I, you know, I, I offer a simple question to my students. They come into class and I ask the question, how many people, how many people walk, saw trash on their way to class today? And everybody raises their hand. How many of you picked up a piece of trash? Just one. Um, and, and maybe one or two students initially ask the question, and, um, and I'll give those students some ridiculous bonus on a test. I'll be like, you know what? That's worth 20 points on the next test. Well, a, a few weeks later, I ask the same question and everybody's hand goes up or they say, well, I picked up a piece of trash today and I applaud. I'm like, nice, very good. And they're, well, where are my points? Well, <laughs> um, you know, it's, and, and, I, and I go back to, um, to John Lennon's song, Imagine. I don't know if you're familiar with it. If you, um, but, uh, imagine goodness without reward. Um, and, and so I'm, what I'm saying to you, Callum, is that something as simple as picking up a gum wrapper is bettering your surroundings, right? Is it going to save a polar bear? I don't know. Is it going to make the air easier for somebody in the lower ninth ward to breathe? I don't know. But I like to think that maybe the earth, you know, tilts just a little bit when that gum wrapper is picked up and put in a different place. Not materially, right? I mean, that mass is that mass, but somehow some goodwill somewhere tilts it. So that's the thing, to get people to care. They may not know or have in their mind the science, those 900 plus pages of climate change science that were plopped on the desk of congressmen who never read them, but to have some understanding to better your world. That's it. So that comes down to two words, love and respect. And love and respect don't require a major or a degree. So, um, so moving that forward, because you're going to lose people, you know, if your first words to them are, don't you know that's bad for the climate? then they're sort of like the climate. Uh, yeah, but it's warm today. It's cold today. What does that have to do with me? So to move it to some area of immediate relevance. So what happens with the students? Well, for a while, you know, people are picking up trash because they sort of are looking for the Skinner box, right? To give, to drop the reward that's gonna give them points. Um, some kids stop and they don't pick up the trash. Some continue, right? 
Some even will bring a bottle or something to class. And then at the end of the semester, I ask them for the tally. So who's done right just to do right? Who's done right for the points? You know, what's the ultimate reward? So I think I'm hopeful that, you know, sort of in this Leopoldian way, we understand that everyone has an ethic of some kind that moves them forward to do better and that they are reaching somebody somewhere else. And that even by their actions, even not by speaking, you know, how many of us have been behind somebody and seen them reach down to pick up a piece of trash and then we do it? Happens all the time. Try it. It's an interesting little, little psychological experiment to watch if you pick up a piece or you throw a bottle in the recycle bin that somebody who may not have, that they also do it. So I think there, there, there are these, these micro protests almost Callum, that we can do, that we show people, you know, we might not raise the fist, but we drop it and we pick up something and put it where, um, where it belongs. And, and we move the world along in those ways. And, and it, it, it may not seem like much, but it makes a difference. It makes a difference. There's a sociology professor at Center College in Kentucky, Bo Weston, who talks about doing this. He goes out of his way to find a single piece of trash on a walk to pick it up for two reasons. He says, one, it makes me happy. And two, <laughs> doing that visibly inspires other people to do the same thing. Yeah, so. I mean, if you, so if you're on campus and sometimes if you have binoculars, people wonder what you're looking at, but how many people stop and are like, what do you see? You say, oh, I just looking at that bird and, and they'll, you know, half of them were like, well, what is it? And then suddenly people are more aware that there are even birds on campus, right? So just little things like that, that, that make people more aware. Awareness is the first step to action. You can't take action if you aren't aware. So, so I don't tell people to go out and preach the gospel of climate change. I go, I, I ask them to, to, to see how others can make the world better in some way. And, um, you know, and, and hopefully it all, it, there's this, this net gain in the end. So Drew, there's a question on uh, Facebook that comes from Buddy, and he wants to know what contemporary writers other than yourself would you <laughs> recommend that, that we look to to deepen the conservation conversation? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, so many. You know, I, I, Helen McDonald is a, is a beautiful writer. Um, Amy Netchu Kamatatil, whose World of Wonders is, um, it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing story um, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a brown woman's sort of journey through, um, through nature and through her life. Um, my friend, John Lane, who's a, who's a local writer and poet um, who, who really sort of investigates, you know, sort of home in this different way and sort of our relationship to it. Um, Camille Dungy, who is a poet, um, at, at Colorado State, uh, gosh, 
um, so so many. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm reading now. Actually, <laughs> I just I just uh, picked this up, and um, this is March. But I, it, my hand just fell on Terry Tempest Williams when women were birds. Right, um, reading Jim Harrison's poems, and uh, you know, so it, it just I'm I'm surrounded. You know, there's Wendell Berry here, right at hand. Um, my old uh, standby, Sally Carragher, just this old, old Robert Michael Pyle, um, just so many things that um, just sort of in, inform me, um, but also inspire me, people who are writing beautifully and who are writing lyrically, um, and, and they're writing towards nature through different prisms. And as they write about nature through these different prisms, I'm informed and, you know, my box of, of, of eight becomes a box of 64 or, and all these different hues that inform nature. So those are some of the, those are some of the people that, that I'm reading, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a room with, you know, surrounded by so much, you know, I'm looking at right here on my desk, another book, Derek Sheffield's Not for Luck, a book of poetry. So I, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by all of these books that I just pull off. And sometimes it's just a matter of a poem or two, um, or a line that I read. Um, I just finished a writing workshop with some wonderful writers from all over the world, um, from Norway to Barrow, Alaska, to Red Lodge, um, Montana, and listening to their writing as students was inspiring to me. You know, listening to someone write about, write a, 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 an essay from the point of view of, of, of a python released into the Florida Everglades, or listening to a Southern Appalachian story, or listening to a story about Greece, a journey from Greece to Montana, all of that inspires me. So I know I'm leaving out names of people I read, but my head just sort of, it's like swallows flying um, around. It's so many that I'm reading right now. So buddy, I'll, uh, if, I, if I give you a list, um, it'll be from here to, I suspect, Baraboo, if I'm thinking this is the buddy that I know. So um, we'll, we'll keep talking. And of course, I, I read Sand County several times a year. Um, sometimes I just read what falls open randomly, um, but it is something, it's a book that I read every year that's sort of a baseline for me. Well, there are books like that, that every time you read them, they're new again. You, as your life changes, uh, you, you read them differently. Absolutely. And, so. Absolutely. Allison, you have a question. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Actually, kind of building on this idea. Um, earlier, we were talking about how much Leopold's writing kind of is so personal, how your writing is so personal, and how much we can connect to and enjoy those stories. Um, I also, in your book, you mentioned something about science tendency to make the miraculous mundane. 
Um, I've talked to some local researchers here who really want to do some writing that is more personal, more connected to like the public, something that isn't just making the miraculous mundane. So I'm wondering if you have any advice on how people trained in science writing can maybe um, start writing for the public or start writing those personal stories when they maybe don't have the confidence right now in their training to do so. Well, I, you know, Allison, great question. Um, the, the first thing is to go back and remember why you got into this in the first place, right? You know, for me and, and all of those years of trying to fly and jumping off of everything I thought I could jump off of to, um, to, to soar away, um, remember that wonder, to go back and understand why we do what we do. You know, it was that fascination with flight. It was, um, it was investigating that puddle to try to understand when those tadpoles got those, those, those tiny hind legs. And, and that's why that wonder, right? So, so the, the connection from that science writing, right? That, that sausage grinder that takes the, you know, all of our data that we gathered and the analysis. And at the end, it comes out to be this beautiful, well, this, this very clean peer-reviewed document in the end. Well, written between those lines are the struggles of the field work, right? Um, of, 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 of having to crawl on your belly to find that nest, um, of, of the, the horror of hearing that engine slow down when you weren't sure whether you were safe or not. And, and it's a risk. First person is a risk, and it's it's a risk that you you have to learn to take, because each time you write it, you're exposing your data, right, um, to scrutiny. So there are a lot of venues that are looking for writing. So look, for example, at at, at local newspapers, blogs, people who are looking for contributions, and oftentimes they're they're perfectly willing to bring in a guest blogger. Um, anybody who's tried to blog on a daily basis knows how hard that is, or even on a weekly basis. You know, so ask to be a guest blogger. Ask to, um, if there is a, a local print or online paper, if you can have a get, if you can be a guest columnist to come in and write about some aspect of your, of your work. Um, Tell, your, tell the stories to, for example, to faculty. <laughs> you know, sometimes as faculty, we come across to students as these, 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 these iBots, right? That go out and we're able to collect the data, analyze the data, spit out the, let them know that you struggled. Let them know that you had fears. Let them know that, you know what? Man, I got depressed during my doctoral research because guess what? Plan A just wasn't working out. And I had to figure out a way to get to plan B, then plan C. But in the end, I prevail. How did I do that? And once you begin to, to loosen sort of those, those, those ties of vulnerability, the rest of it kind of comes. So all of that rests behind sort of a dam. And that dam is in part its ego, right? And we all have that. But, get, but getting to that point of saying, you know what? No, I am not the perfect scientist 
who whose every move resulted in usable and useful data. And once we do that, that we sort of get real with our students and we get real with ourselves, that's the first thing. Then these other stories kind of flow. But then um, from a logistics logistical standpoint, there are people who want your stories. The example, one of the examples I have is from the Western uh, section of the Wildlife Society. And um, our professional journal through the Wildlife Society, right, is, um, is the, the wildlife professional. They came up with this amazing journal. Well, it's not a journal, um, but it was, uh, it was a, a volume called the Wildlife Confessional. And the subtitle and it's this wonderful boot on the cover, worn boot, and the subtitle is Kick It in the Ice Hole, I-C-E Hole. And that's the story that biologist is telling about a field experience, right? And so it's all the stuff that's not, that never comes out, would come out in the wildlife or, or come out in um, ecological applications or a condor or whatever, but that's where it is. And it lets us understand who biologists are. I mean, have you ever been to a meeting? You ever had somebody that you just revered because of the papers that they've written and, and you get to a, you get to the professional meeting and you're like, huh, she's much taller than I thought she was, or he's really very shy. He comes across really very differently. So we get to see the human beings. And, and that's important for us. And that's the only way I think that we inspire young people to want to do what we do. They got to understand that, yeah, he's out there. You know, this person is out there now, um, you know, splitting plethodon glutinosis into 76 different species. But it all started because they were intrigued with turning over logs in the woods and finding salamanders. Does that make sense? And they might find commonality in being bassoonists or something like that. You never know. <laughs> uh, Drew, we have we have a lot of questions that have come in on Facebook, but we only have about five minutes left. I'm going to try to put three of the questions are are pretty similar. They're they're all reflecting on the fact that that you grew up in this rural area and had this wonderful exposure as a child mm -hmm. and uh, that and th this leads to your love of birding and but fewer and fewer children are, are living in areas like that um, and many many children are living in in cities where they maybe don't have the same opportunities or the opportunities might be more dangerous in, to go into the parks and things they'd have to go in so the question is how can we make birding in particular and maybe just love of nature in general more inclusive. Don't ignore pigeons or starlings or weeds growing in the cracks of sidewalks. I mean, you know, here, so let's go with starlings, right? That everybody, you know, we can all, we, we know, we know what ecologically, right? So sort of where starlings are and in, in, in for, for, for many. 
starlings are an immigrant story. That's a bird that was brought to the new to the United States by um, an acclimatization society that wanted to see Shakespeare's birds here. So they were brought to Central Park. That's an immigrant story. Um, these are birds that are extraordinarily intelligent, extraordinarily adaptable, um, and um, have been successful here. They, they don't have protection under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. You could go out on Fifth Avenue, right, and kill a starling and nobody would get arrested. Um, but that, that bird has a story to tell. But as birders, we often decry the pigeons as, as flying rats, the starlings as invasive exotics, and birds that don't sort of fit squarely in the box of sort of this, this nativist um, idea that is bad. To take people away from where they are so they can go to somewhere better so they can experience our nature. Well, I'm, I'm, and, and I'm not, you know, before people say, well, you're just, you want to trash the environment with starlings. That's not what I'm saying. But if you ever watch the beauty of a pigeon's flight through a, a canyon of concrete and glass, right, um, and, and understand the, the, the power of that bird's flight, um, that, and, and maybe there is a peregrine from, um, from, from the high Arctic that, that, that flies after that pigeon, or maybe that's the peregrine that's nesting on the high rise across the street from where the peregrine flies. But you're not going to see that peregrine maybe if you don't pay attention to that pigeon first. You're not going to recognize that what you're hearing is that starling mimicking a cell phone ring unless you pay attention to what starlings do. So there's a way that we recognize that weed in the seam of the sidewalk is a wildflower instead of stepping on it to take people and say that the only way you can experience true birding or true wildness is to go a thousand miles away. So the experience of, of nature is, 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 is outside every single door. It's out there. Um, it's a matter of us some uh, 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 taking a bit of a step back from ourselves and saying, okay, right, um, let's, let's think about this starling. Let's think about this immigrant story that on YouTube, people cry at murmurations of these birds swirling in the hundreds of thousands. But then up close, they, they could hear us about that one black bird's life. So... I can take social construct and wrap it around a starling really easily, just like I can a pigeon or a house sparrow. You know, I, you know, it's and it's a matter of perspective. And I, I know how bad garlic mustard is as an invasive exotic in Wisconsin, but I've also watched people gathered on the roadside to take it home and eat it. So one person's, <laughs> one person's um, invasive exotic is the next person's dinner. So we have to think about those questions of how we have defined nature, not to toss those away, but to learn nature and to not just go where, you know, meet people where they are, but be where they are and listen to what they say see what they see and not just point out what we want them to see. Then I think we begin, Rick, to, to broaden this conversation in some ways.
that's really wonderful. Um, and, um, and yeah, it's just uh, learning the names of, of so many of the things that are really close, close to home. That's what you talk about in the home place, learning the names and being observant of the things that are near us. That is what opens up our hearts and opens up the world to us. And it's what you write about so beautifully. Thank you. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. This was really a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank all of you who were here in this Zoom call. And, um, and then the, the folks watching on Facebook, we had a lot of great questions. You might want to go back, uh, Drew, and just look at some of the comments on there. Um, people are very appreciative of you coming and spending some time with us here this evening to celebrate Aldo Leopold. Well, I look forward to it. And again, thank you all for having me there while I'm here. Um, Wisconsin's one of my favorite places. I've spent a lot of time in Baraboo, a good bit of time in Madison, but also have conducted bird tours with my good buddy, Dr. David LaPuma, all the way across to Wyalusing State Park, right? Where we read from Leopold at the Pigeon Memorial. So thank you so much for, for giving me the opportunity to, to honor the Leopold legacy. And I look forward to the time when I can, I can join you again in person. So thank you. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Good night. All right. Good night. Be safe.